0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast. This is John Jantz and my guest today is Dr. Nick Morgan. He is one of America's top communication theorists and coaches, author of books like Give a Speech, Change the World, and Trust Me, and a new book we're going to talk about today, Power Cues, The Subtle Science of Leading Groups, Persuading Others, and Maximizing Your Personal Impact. So, Nick, thanks for joining me.
1: A pleasure, John. Thanks for having me on your show.
0: I think you're a return guest. As a matter of fact, I've been doing I this. Am. I've been doing this so long that I get to actually forget who I had on some of my shows. So.
1: <laughs> it's an honor to be a forgotten guest <laughs> on your
0: show. So, uh, anytime somebody uses a a title that uh, that maybe needs a little definition, I always start out there. What actually is a power cue? Uh,
1: yeah, it's a great question. Um, it, c- it came about incidentally because the. Uh, the first title we had chosen was, was taken by another author. So uh, a slightly different subject, but, but uh, we couldn't use it. So we came up with Power Cues. And that, it, what it really is about is uh, the things that we do unconsciously with our, with our bodies, with our voices that help us connect with other people in terms of uh, leadership um, or followership. So uh, the, the, the cues that we send out that say, hey, I'm a leader, I'm in charge of this room, um, or hey, I'm a follower, somebody else is in charge.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because they're, they're as strong as the words we say, right? I mean, they're, they're nonver- it's a nonverbal language almost, right?
1: That's correct, and it's largely unconscious. Our, our unconscious brains are vast, and by definition, we're not aware of them. They are unconscious for the most part. Occasionally, they, they uh, tweak our conscious mind and we become aware of them. But they can handle something like 11 million bits of information a second where the conscious mind can only handle about 40.
0: Huh.
1: And sure. so the, re- the result is that that, uh, that unconscious mind has evolved to handle all kinds of, of ways that we communicate just simply because our conscious minds would get overwhelmed.
0: And and some of it's t- in response to how we're feeling or thinking at the moment, right? I mean, so if I'm nervous on stage, there might be some cues that I give that, that would signal that to somebody.
1: That's right. You Before you even open your mouth, you establish a relationship with the audience. You're, you send out… Those, yeah, and it, uh,
0: and uh, for and me, it's all downhill after that,
1: actually. <laughs> yeah, I'm so sorry to hear that. No, <laughs> I, don't, I don't believe it. I, I hear otherwise. But anyway, uh, uh, yeah, you send out messages of nervousness. Then what happens is uh, your body is sending that out. The unconscious minds of your audience pick up on that nervousness. And we have these things called mirror neurons, for example, in our heads, which mean that uh, when the audience sees the speaker being nervous, mirror neurons fire the same emotion in the audience's head. So the speaker actually makes the audience nervous if he or she is nervous. Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah. And the
1: result is, of course, not so great for communication we don 't communicate best when we 're nervous
0: you know it 's funny maybe this is getting too uh, you know, too down to uh, to animal behavior but uh, i uh, I know I have had dogs over the years um, friendliest, gentlest dogs in the world, and then they would encounter somebody who was clearly afraid of dogs, and mm. the dog would get that that was the only time I ever saw my dogs get aggressive, and it was clearly when somebody was putting off this cue of I'm scared of you, so maybe you should be scared of me. Uh, right. that, that's how I interpreted it.
1: Yeah, that's right. And we we all have seen that behavior in dogs. It's just uh, now we're becoming aware that it happens in humans, too. It, it's just that humans are a little better at hiding it, especially uh, grownups. We learn to mask yeah. or ignore those uh, low-level feelings. Um, we, we pay attention to the really strong ones if we're terrified or if we're really angry or really happy. That comes to our conscious awareness, but the low-level nervousness and things like that, that just goes straight from one unconscious mind to another, which is why, in fact, it's so powerful.
0: Well, I know when I first started speaking, one of the things that I, when I decided I wanted to try to get better at this, I, uh, I had some of my first talks uh, videoed, uh, and that was, for me, one of the first times I became aware of some of the things that I was actually doing that I thought were annoying <laughs> in, in some of my speech, in some of the ways I would stand, in my gestures and the way I moved way too fast uh, back and forth across the stage. And I think that that probably is the first step, isn't it, is, is to start being aware of not only what we're doing, but, but what impact it has.
1: Absolutely. A videotape is a great way to do that, by the way. In fact, in the first chapter I, of the book, I talk about, as a question, how do you show up when you walk into a room, meaning what's, what's the message or messages that your body language conveys to the other people in that room as you walk in. And it's becoming self-aware that that's, that's that first step. I was working with an executive the other day who um, had a curious way of standing that really was, was very self-effacing. Uh, the shoulders were slumped. There were some other aspects of the body language that, that said, I want to be invisible in this room, and that had worked fine when he was a subordinate, but he'd just been promoted to the uh, executive team. Now he had to show up as a leader. He couldn't be that self effacing person anymore. And as we talked about it, it turned out he'd been bullied as a kid mm. from about age 11 to age 18. And his survival technique was to uh, mm. kind of disappear, yeah, get as m- m- invisible with his body as he could, and it was still showing up in his adult huh. self many years later.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. So you're saying that we that the first stop is to the psychiatrist. Then, uh, if we want to work <laughs> through some of these issues, um, one of the things you talk a lot about, and I actually I said that kiddingly, but I'm sure you discover that a lot. I mean, that a lot of who we're being is is a collection of some of the some of the things that we're we're taught, and and not of them, not all of them were were positive.
1: That's right. We we yeah. carry our history in our bodies, and some of it's good, and some of it is uh, painful. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, so that's why when you start to take stock, uh, you got to be prepared to learn some things about yourself.
0: Hmm. So one of the things you talk about a lot, or the the how these things manifest, is is in gestures. So can hmm. you give me some examples of maybe good gestures and bad gestures that 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 really and and maybe there's maybe there isn't a definitive oh that's a bad thing and that's a good thing. Maybe it's a combination. But are there some clear positive things that people could start doing to ha- that would have impact and then clear negative things they need to stop doing.
1: Absolutely. So uh, the first thing to understand is that um, specific gestures can can have multiple meanings. So right. we, we don't want to get too, too rigid about thinking this is a bad gesture or this is a good gesture. For instance, if you scratch your nose obsessively, that might not be a good thing. You might look weirdly nervous or, or something, but uh, you might also just have an itchy nose if you did it once or twice. So we, we can't read too much in an individual gesture. What we look for, the, the better way to do it is to look for groups of gestures and consistent behavior. Uh, but that said, then a classic thing to look for, we, we started with the example of speakers, because you're a speaker and I, and I speak as mm-hmm. well. So uh, it's a it 's a, a a brother a brotherhood we share <laughs> and, yep. and and we 're all familiar, uh, and s- most people do in the business world. they get some chance to uh, speak in front of an audience of some size or other and and so we 're all used to dealing with those nerves that that happen to a speaker and one of the classic things that people do they 've learned they 've been trained perhaps, or somebody's told them don't fold your arms um, over your chest because that looks obviously defensive. Um, And and maybe they've been told, uh, don't put your hands in your pockets, or maybe sometimes they're told to put their hands in their pockets uh, in a sort of a casual gesture. In fact, then it looks like you're hiding something. So that that one is not such a good one. But the classic thing people do when they're simply not thinking about their gestures, they're just walking out on the stage getting ready to give a speech, is that they tend to hold their hands together in some way or other, either they're clasped together or they're just kind of folded together in front of their torsos. And you, if you watch speakers, you will see this over and over and over again. And the reason they're doing that is, as we started by saying, they're a little bit nervous, uh, and so they're doing what humans instinctively do when they're nervous, feeling uh, exposed, they protect their uh, vital organs, so they protect their kidneys and livers and everything else that's right there in front of your stomach. Uh, so you have your hands up in front like that in order to be ready as unconscious, hardwired defense mechanism by an animal, from one animal to another, you put your hands there. So that, that because of mirror neurons, sends out those uh, nervous-making feelings to the audience, as I suggested. So a better thing to do is to keep your gestures open to the audience um, if you if you think about your torso standing in front of an audience, keep your torso facing toward the audience and don't do anything that blocks it off because it's it's like the difference between saying to an audience unconsciously, you can trust me, or saying to the audience, I'm here in fight position, ready to fight anybody off if you guys threaten me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which Which do you imagine is better to connect with an audience in the positive way we need to? Obviously, it's the open one. You can trust me. So in general... Uh, we think about we coach people to be uh, open in their gestures, which means don't bring your hands together in front of your torso in some way. That's the most specific I can get over the uh, over the radio airwaves.
0: <laughs> well, I, I had some uh, acting coaching years ago, and I, one of the, one of the bits that I remember from that was that every single gesture, every single move, should have an intention, so that that you're doing it to puncture. So, so a lot of the things that we might talk about as bad. If you do them with an intention of trying to, you know, trying to accomplish something, and, and many like folding your arms, you know, or yeah. putting your hands in your pockets, leaning on the podium, uh, there might actually some, be some very good reasons to do all those things that that people say, oh no, don't ever do those. But only if you have an intention, or at least that I, that made a lot of sense to me. Um, and, and again, I obviously you have to work through you know any of those things but even even just the the opening and the and the holding your hand out and pointing and walking forward on the stage walking backwards on the stage all those things that we do um... It, you, you instead of just doing them by habit that they actually become part of the act if
1: you will yeah the that's very good advice for an actor because an actor playing a character might have lots of reasons to appear on right. stage as defensive or angry or, right. or, or homicidal or uh, conniving or you know, right. uh, de- uh, if you're playing Richard the Third, you're trying to take over the kingship and slaughter everybody in your way. So uh, there might be all kinds of gestures that would be intentionally appropriate for that. The the thing you're absolutely right at one level. The thing to think about is what is your intention to that right. audience. Right. And I would say for speakers, for the most part. You're trying to entertain and inform that audience, as Aristotle said. Um you're trying to do a bit of both, but basically you're trying to connect with them in mm-hmm. some way that mm-hmm. feels authentic, that feels real, and that feels conversational. 20 years ago, 30 years ago, a speech was more of a lecture, and it was more formal, and you could stand behind the podium the whole time, yeah. uh, and people accepted that. Now the the uh, genre has changed, and, and people expect more of a conversation, and so your intention has to be to make a connection, and so if you think about what are the kind of gestures we use normally to make a connection with somebody uh, in conversation or when we first meet somebody. Um, we, we use open gestures. We use friendly gestures. We reach toward people. We move into their uh, mm-hmm. closer to them as opposed to away uh, from them. So th- th- if you think about gestures in that sense with the basic intent of a speaker, then yes, um, your gestures can become very uh, intentional and appropriate for that. But I would beware of saying, for instance... Anything
0: goes. (laughs) Yeah, anything goes.
1: Because uh, if you fold your arms, there might be a reason in the moment for that to feel good. But does that comport with the basic intention of you trying to connect with the audience? Yeah. Yeah. And of course, the other thing to remember is, as I said, specific gestures don't matter all that much unless you use them obsessively or they become a tick or something like mm-hmm, that. So mm-hmm. if, you fold, if you're fold, if you giving a 30-minute speech or an hour-long speech and you fold your arms once during the course of that hour, that's not going to make any difference in terms of your connection with the audience as long as your overall intention is uh, and, and gestures are consistent to connect with them and have a friendly conversation with that audience.
0: Now, we've been talking mostly about the stage and the spotlights are on. You're 50 feet away from the audience and, and you're trying to connect and... and uh, create or, or communicate a message. What about that person that's standing in a group of four or five people? I think you talk about that, too, that, that it's, it's not just speaking, but it's really with any kind of leading or influence that these gestures, even in close proximity, can uh, can convey a, uh, cr- quite a bit as well, can't they?
1: That's right. And in some ways, they're even more important because your individual persona has more effect on, on your team or a small group of people or a, a, a collection of, of colleagues uh, in some ways than it does if you're talking to an audience of five hundred so your um, your posture, uh, the way you stand, whether you're standing defensively or or like my my uh, uh, executive if you're trying to disappear into the woodwork um, there all kinds of messages are conveyed by our body language all the time most of the time they stay at the level of unconscious behavior we're not particularly aware of them, and the other people aren't particularly aware of them. But that doesn't mean they're not powerful because they go straight to the other people's unconscious minds as well, and that's yeah. where we form intents and attitudes and emotions. And so, as a result, it's very important. What I talk about in the book is how to become consciously aware of those things so that you make sure you're sending the right message out to people, uh, and you connect with them in the way you want to.
0: Yeah, and and is it there? I mean, because I think there's the danger sometimes of saying, "Well, these are the right gestures." And, and follow these 10 gestures and you'll be on your way to success when a lot of, I think, success comes about being yourself. And so that person that maybe is very huggy and touchy-feely and they, you know, when they have a conversation, they touch somebody on the elbow. I mean, that to them is a very embracing gesture. It may or may not have that <laughs> impact on the other person. But, but, I mean, is there some danger of becoming robotic in that sense?
1: Absolutely. And, and I talk a lot about that in the book, about this is all about becoming your best self. It's about finding your authentic self and getting the the, the chatter, if you will, from your body out of the way, the irrelevant chatter and making yeah. sure that it's focused. I mean, a classic example of that is uh, uh, for years, coaches uh, like me, not me particularly, but others unnamed, let's say, taught that... If you put your two hands together in front of your torso with your fingertips touching, they used to call it um, a spider doing push-ups in a mirror. So can you imagine the (laughs) gesture? Yeah,
0: Yeah. Yeah, I'm doing Uh, it right now.
1: Yeah, um, that that was a great gesture because it it showed you to be a powerful intellectual and was really intimidating to other people. So this was a kind of secret gesture uh-huh. that if you wanted, if you did it, it would you would take power in the room and sort of lay waste to the competition and 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 just reduce <laughs> people to quivering heaps of jelly. And that's absurd on so many levels, uh, but the, the main message that that sends out is, again, that you're closed off to other people, not that you're terrifying or intimidating. But the funny follow-up to that is that some coach or other taught that gesture to a, a bunch of all the current CNN um, uh, newsreaders and, and, uh, and public figures – um, and this was this was about eight years ago, and so for several years, everybody on CNN—I remember John Roberts in particular doing this. For those of you who remember uh, CNN from a few years back, and John Roberts was was one of the uh, morning uh, figures, uh, and uh, they all went around doing the uh, doing the uh, <laughs> spider doing. F- Push-ups in the mirror, and I used to laugh as I saw it because it was clear they had been coached. That this was made them more intimidating and powerful and, and uh, amazing uh, individuals. And of course, all it does is make you look slightly awkward. And, and the, the further reason for that, by the way, John, is is a fascinating one. We don't know quite why this is the case, but it turns out that if we if we uh, limit our gestures in some way like that, if we force ourselves to adopt a specific gesture and then leave it there for a long time, then we're limiting our natural tendency to kind of wave our arms around when we talk. I'm doing it now as I'm talking to you, even though we're speaking uh, via the digital uh, universe here. Um, We're not face to face, but I'm waving my hands around because what the research shows is if you deliberately limit your hand gestures, you make your brain work harder. You literally make yourself stupider and less creative. <laughs> and so uh, ever, since, ever since learning about that, uh, that uh, research, I've allowed myself to gesture as much as I wanted because I, I want all the brain power I can get. So, <laughs> uh, so limiting yourself by adopting specific gestures like yeah. that not only is a bad idea in terms of it doesn't make you look authentic or real, uh, but also it, it actually limits your brain power.
0: I would say it would be the equivalent of of tightening yourself
1: up almost. Yeah, yeah, something like that, yeah.
0: So um, one of the things that I have over the years been, for good or bad, uh, as a behavior is that I'm I'm very adaptable to diverse people, diverse environments. I have a tendency to model people Mm. uh, sometimes, um, just unconsciously. Uh, In fact, one time I remember early on in my sales career, it sort of unknowingly blew up on me. I was, I was calling on an older, um, happened to be Jewish East Coast gentleman, had very, you know, heavy accent and a lot of the kind of what you associate with some of the traditional uh, uh, Jewish culture. And I found myself modeling him a little too closely in, in my language and he called me on it. He said, what, what are you doing? And I was like, oh, I didn't even realize. But uh, I'd love it if you'd, uh, if you'd talk about that uh, behavior uh, specifically.
1: Well, in that you showed yourself to be a great salesman, <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> and and uh, it's no wonder to me then you've had the success you've had because uh, what you're doing is broadly speaking what we call mimicry. Um, that is, when two people first meet, um, if one person mirrors the other. So imagine two people meeting in a coffee shop, let's say, and they stand together and shake hands and then one person turns slightly in one direction, if the other person makes the same move, or if one person leans in one direction, the other person leans the same way, then the second person is mirroring the first. All mm-hmm. right. What we find is that if you do that um, successfully, if, you're, if, you, if you do it consciously and clumsily, then you'll just make the other person feel weird. But if, uh, if you do it successfully, so you do it subtly, um, and and somebody like you does it unconsciously, then really what you're doing is, uh, for reasons that involve a slightly longer explanation of the the brain science, but but the short version is that you're mirroring their body language in order to understand their intent. And so the other person, the person that's being mirrored, feels very comfortable with you because it feels like, uh, you're matching them emotionally as well as physically, and the reason for that is, is that uh, we, in our unconscious minds, the first evidence of how we're feeling, how our emotions are being, uh, uh, are being, expressed, is through the body. So, uh, so when we see somebody mirroring us, then what that message, that message is, that we're in agreement in some way. Mm-hmm. And so what you were doing was unconsciously building trust with that other person. Uh, and so that that's, uh, that's what's going on there. And it's a very effective technique used consciously. Again, if you do it well, if you do it subtly and you don't overdo it, it's a very good technique to make somebody else feel comfortable, uh, to build agreement, to build a relationship quickly uh, with somebody. So uh, uh, what you were doing was, uh, was great body language behavior. And by the way, if, uh, if you... Uh, take a stroll through a city and, and say you sit in a cafe and you watch the people walking by, you can always tell the people who are um, either their lovers uh, and so they they move almost as one. You'll see them gesture mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the same way at the same time or they'll lean over together. They'll bring their heads together at exactly the same time. You see this beautiful sort of dance that people do when they're in love. It's really fun to watch. Or if they're just good business colleagues and they're, they're, or they're longtime friends and they really understand and know each other, you'll see them do the same thing, mirroring that behavior and doing the same thing almost virtually at the same time. And it's very hard to tell who's led the behavior and who's following. And that's a true sign. That's genuine mirroring or genuine mimicry. And it's because those people are in profound agreement.
0: Well, and, and, and that really leads to a question I plan to ask anyway, uh, beautifully, and and that is that you know is there is there a practice in reading those so so if people are giving off those cues uh, do you sometimes and i don't mean this in a negative way but do you sometimes uh, gain an advantage by understanding those those cues and and so instead of just talking about your gestures but actually reading those gestures
1: oh absolutely and and i do talk about that in the book that for instance uh, one can imagine uh, a negotiation scenario where you're negotiating with another party, um, you can build agreement with that other party by mirroring the behavior. And then um, there there are a whole series of ways in which that might be helpful. But you can typically see when somebody has made a decision before they're aware of it themselves, because they'll start to embody it in some way. And it doesn't reach their conscious mind until after it's reached their body. And we think it's the other way around. We think our conscious minds instruct our bodies what to do. But in fact, our bodies instruct our conscious minds as to what we've decided. And that's very counterintuitive, but that's what the neuroscience shows. And so that suggests that if you study other people's body language, you can figure out what they're thinking before they're aware of it. Now it's not a huge advantage. It's not like hours before they're aware of it. It's only seconds. <laughs> right. But even those seconds can sometimes be useful, to, before they uh, say something out loud to to uh, stave off uh, the breaking down of a negotiation, for example, and to say, "I tell you what, let's take a timeout here," because you can see they're about to decide something the wrong way, a way you don't want. You can say, "Let's take a timeout here. Let's uh, let's not let's not." Complete. Let's go and and get a coffee break for a while, and come back and talk things over. Uh, and so, uh, being aware of people's body language can be enormously helpful uh, there, and and also in more obvious situations like uh, um, like job interviews and things like that. You can usually tell if you if you've uh, become aware of the body language whether the the person sitting opposite you wants to make a job offer or not, or is going to hire you or not. Those that's useful uh, things to know. Walking out of a a job interview. Say in that in that example, it's just very nice to know whether you've been hired or not before the offer has been made.
0: Well, and I think that uh, in in many selling situations, uh, business people or sales people, I know that that after, you know you build up over years of experience in some cases. But obviously, if I'd have read your book, it, it wouldn't taken me years. But uh, <laughs> years years of experience, you can see that uh, a client or a prospect is not getting it. Right. And and so in many cases, their language can say, oh, I need to back off and redirect into saying, okay, clearly we're talking about the wrong problem, <laughs> you know, maybe, yes. or something of that yes. nature. And, and and I know that I've used that uh, countless times uh, when when somebody is pretty, obviously, you can tell, even if they're nodding their head, yes, yes, this is the greatest thing in the world, you can actually see, oh, they don't get it. And, yes. and so, you know, that I think can be very helpful as well.
1: Yeah, that's right. You want to, at that point... Uh you want, to, you want to stop, as you say, and change the direction of the way the conversation is going because you see that it's not working, they're not getting it. So that can be a great moment to stop and say, i tell you what, let's pause here for a moment. I feel like I'm doing too much of the talking. Let me give you a chance to ask some questions I mean, that, or, or something like that in order to, uh, to break the flow so that it doesn't keep going down that same track and and that's an important thing to, that leads to an important thing to understand which is this is not really about manipulation right. this is about understanding what other people are thinking but there this is not voodoo or magic or mm-hmm. anything like that you cannot make people do things they fundamentally don't want to do with this kind of thing it's just you can become more aware of what they're already thinking or what they're about to decide before they do. And so you can head them off at the pass, maybe. Maybe you can salvage the situation if they're going to make a negative decision. Um, And and also, you can make sure that you send out the right signals so that you're not sending out mixed signals. I mean, one of the big hazards of business life today is that we walk around with a whole lot going on in our heads. We're in this mm-hmm. classic information overload world that we've all talked so much about, the 24 seven world. And so we're walking around with our with our iPhones going and, and we've got messages coming from every direction. Um, we're thinking about our to-do list. We're thinking about the plane we have to catch the next day. and And we bring that sort of mental confusion into our meetings, into our conversations, and sometimes even into our speeches. Uh, and our bodies telegraph that. It's not very charismatic. It's not very powerful. And so one of the things I talk about in the book is how to show up as your best self, how to focus and get ready for those important meetings, those important conversations, and those important speeches.
0: I want to end on uh, a topic that it seems like uh, almost every book on the topic of leadership has been talking about uh, lately, and that is that uh, the art of storytelling. And mm. I know that you you you've talked about that in all your books really uh because it right. it's clearly a a classic uh, you know powerful uh, way to get a message across communicate to simplify uh, but when it comes to this idea of power cues um you you're basically saying people leaders have to get better at st- at storytelling um, and I think that that's a message that there's no question of its value, but I think that that it's one that is really hard for people to wrap their heads around. I mean, are you telling me I, I need to make up stories, uh, you know, about the company? I need to make up stories about, you know, where we're going? I need to always use metaphors? I, I think people have a lot of confusion about that idea of storytelling a, as yes, a leadership that, tool, as a leadership. That's
1: right. right. It's a great. It's a great question, and and basically, the kind of story I'm. T- storytelling I'm talking about is the deep storytelling. And I claim there are only five basic stories that we tell each other in in our culture, uh, the most familiar and fundamental of which is the quest. And what you're doing when you're telling a story is you're shaping experience. And for most people, experience is frankly pretty chaotic. Um, and we don't have a sense, except at, at sort of peak moments in our lives when we take on a new job we might see that as the beginning of a new chapter in our lives saying but most of the time we have a very hard time creating a sense of the story of our lives the arc or the shape of our lives and what a leader can do is give that kind of arc that kind of storyline to employees or to people that he or she is leading and that's extremely powerful if you can enlist your employees for example on a quest then they will they will respond much more powerfully and over the long haul with much more enthusiasm uh, than you will if if you just uh, – on one day you tell them this and another day you tell them that. You say, here are the facts. Here's what's doing well. These numbers are up. Those numbers are down. That kind of okay. stuff goes in one ear and out the other for people. But if you say, we're trying to uh, change the world here by bringing out this product which is going to make – millions of people's lives better, and we're going to have to work really hard. It's a long journey to get to that wonderful goal, and, and we're going to have to work hard together on it. We're going to have to eat a lot of cold pizza and drink a lot of flat Pepsi to get there. and <laughs> and uh, But the goal is going to be so wonderful by the time we get there. It, it'll be worth it. If you tell them that kind of quest story, I'm just making this one up as I go along, you'll tell a much better one, of course, but uh, you understand. You get the concept. Um, if you tell them that kind of story, then you'll enlist their emotions and their enthusiasms and their deep need for some kind of order in in life some kind of arc in our own lives and and so you'll be a much more effective leader so that's what i mean by storytelling it's not it's not making up little uh, fairy tales about about what's going on it's providing these kind of deep basic structures like a quest Uh, to the work that we do every day, which otherwise lacks meaning. I mean, that's what Steve Jobs did so well at Apple. He would say, we're out to get Big Brother here. We're out to put meaning back into your life. That was a uh, particular kind of story that he was telling. I call that a stranger in a strange land story. And he was trying to change the world with that story. He had enormous success doing it because he told such a great story, starting with those ads and his product announcement speeches, which became so famous. So that's what we're talking about here. It's that kind of storytelling.
0: Well and I, and I think that uh I think every I mean at least every small business owner that I have worked with ha- typically has some it may not be the the quest of Steve Jobs but it's something they've overcome some reason they got fired from a job that t- said that that's the day I started my business I mean there there are some what what, what are seemingly little things I think you're right can bring facts yep. uh, to life in in an emotional way and obviously you know speakers see that all the time I when I first started speaking I I didn't use stories that much. I just—I thought people were there for me to tell them the three ways to do X, Y, Z. And I realized pretty quickly on after watching other speakers that if I told them each of those ways but told them a story that they had all been telling themselves anyway, uh, those three ways all, all of a sudden became magical instead of dry.
1: Exactly. Yeah, That's what it's all about.
0: Nick, thanks so much for joining me. Uh, Power Cues, the subtle science of leading groups, persuading others, maximizing your personal impact can be uh, purchased wherever books are available. And uh, tell tell the folks where they can find out more about you. I know you also uh, do a, a fair amount of of coaching for speakers and coaching on just this topic in general.
1: That's right. We, uh, we work with both the executives who want to up their, their presence, their executive presence, as well as with speakers um, who uh, – who make a living doing this kind of thing. Uh, so thanks for asking. It's uh, www.publicwords.com is our website, and all the all the information is on there, as well as a tremendous amount of, uh, of uh, good resources about uh, how to communicate better.
0: And, and do, do I, um, am I making this up to you? Do you have some family members in the business?
1: Absolutely. Uh, my wife does our uh, website and backroom stuff and two daughters, uh, uh, one of whom works on our uh, social media and the other of whom is a writer and helps, uh, helps with uh, some of the speech writing. So we're, we're really excited to have a family business. Yeah,
0: well, I, I have my two oldest daughters work full-time for me as well. So uh, oh, that's great. Uh, so Congratulations. We'll come have you back on. We'll have a show all about the, that topic alone. In fact, we should get all of them on. Wouldn't that be a great show?
1: That would be wonderful. That, what a kick that would be! Yeah, well, let's do it. In,
0: in fact, I'm I'm uh, I'm speaking at uh, the World Domination Summit in Portland this year. Are you familiar with that uh, event? Oh, yeah. um, and uh, I'm I'm still wrestling with what I'm going to talk about, and I'm I'm toying with somehow working that whole idea of of having employees you literally do love.
1: <laughs> well uh, tell them first <laughs> warn them first before you uh, before you go public with that. <laughs>
0: Thanks so much Nick and we'll catch up with you out there on the road. Thanks.